Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, November 18th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topsher. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The Republicans win control of the House. Nancy Pelosi steps down as the House Democratic leader. Los Angeles elects its first black female mayor. A U.S. general reiterates his recommendation for Ukraine to negotiate as Biden and Zelensky clash. A Dutch court convicts three of murder over a downed Malaysia Airlines flight. Britain and France announce their largest war games since the Cold War. The United Kingdom Chancellor announces billions in tax rises and spending cuts. Malta moves to ease its total ban on abortion. Yale and Harvard Law Schools shun U.S. news rankings. And the FDA approves lab-grown meat. In our top story, news from the U.S. midterms as Republicans win control of the House. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Daily Mail, New York Post, Guardian, DW, and Associated Press. After over a week since the November 8 midterms, Republicans are now projected to win a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. This portends two years of divided government as the Democratic Party retained control of the Senate. The GOP secured the 218 seats needed to flip control from the Democrats on Wednesday evening following a win in California's 27th Congressional District. However, their majority will still be quite slim and narrower than was generally predicted before the midterms. The race saw incumbent California Republican Mike Garcia score a victory over Democrat Christy Smith. The race was called with 75% of the vote tabulated and Garcia ahead by 54.2% to Smith's 45.8%. The outcome will end Democrat Nancy Pelosi's tenure as House Speaker. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, is favored to take the post. Biden congratulated McCarthy on his party's success in the midterms, saying, quote, I will work with anyone, Republican or Democrat, willing to work with me to deliver results for the American people. Per the Associated Press, Democrats will finish with at least 210 seats, but no more than 217. Thank you, Eric, for the facts of this first story. And on this show, we always separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll start with a Democratic narrative from CNN. There was no so-called red wave. Though Republicans eking out a majority is a win for them, their road ahead won't be a cakewalk. The Republican Party is deeply divided, and Kevin McCarthy's first challenge will be formally getting elected House Speaker. Democrats only need to influence a few Republicans along the way to yield influence in the new House. And we're going to counter that with the Republican narrative. It's courtesy of Fox News. Now that Republicans have control of the House, they can proceed with investigating Hunter Biden's business dealings, the process of the January 6th committee, and Biden's catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Democrats wrongly thought Americans were worried about access to abortion and so-called threats to democracy. But in reality, Americans are more concerned over bread and butter issues like inflation and the economy. Always interesting to see on the other side of the elections, Eric, you know, we were talking about some of these nerd narratives, uh, statistical predictions that will the Republicans take the Senate and the House. That red wave wasn't as powerful as people predicted. You never know. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Continuing on with political stories, Nancy Pelosi will step down as Democratic House leader. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The New York Post, The New York Times, BBC News, Fox News, The Washington Post, and The Daily Wire. U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California, on Thursday announced that she will not be seeking re-election as leader of the House Democrats. The 82-year-old has held the position since 2003 when she became House Minority Leader. She made her announcement in front of members of Congress, beginning her remarks by reminiscing about the first time she visited the Capitol building when she was six. She also spoke about her father, a former congressman, and the late Democratic representative and civil rights icon John Lewis. Having served in Congress since 1987, Pelosi said, I never would have thought that someday I would go from homemaker to house speaker. Pelosi further stated, The hour has come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus. In her first stint as speaker from 2007 to 2011, Pelosi helped achieve key party goals during Obama's first two years in office, including the Affordable Care Act and economic stimulus legislation. During the Trump administration, she led her party against his efforts to build a wall on the Mexican border and through two impeachment votes. Pelosi was known for being the first woman to serve in the role, as well as for her ability to keep an often fractious Democratic Party in line to pass bipartisan legislation. She will continue to serve as a member of the House. After Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, pulled out of the running as he eyes a potential Senate seat, Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, is seen as a possible replacement. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. And we're going to begin with the first spin, which is a Democratic narrative coming from New York Times. Throughout her storied career, Pelosi has made history as not only the first female Speaker of the House, but as a stopgap between her party's agenda and the GOP. From pulling together support to pass Obamacare to leading the charge to enact last year's Inflation Reduction Act, she's become a thorn in the side of Republicans for almost two decades. She will leave an indelible mark on the House of Representatives. And where there's a Democratic, there's a Republican narrative, and that comes from Town Hall. Though stepping down from her official party leader status, Pelosi couldn't possibly let go of the nearly autocratic power she's held on to for so long. Just as she kept the halls of Congress locked down during COVID, she'll likely remain behind the scenes pulling the strings without being held to account in the public spotlight. I mean, if I were her, I would say, it's been a hell of a year. I'm going to go to some unnamed tropical island that no one knows exists and uh, take a couple months. Off the grid. In more political news, Los Angeles elects its first black woman mayor. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, NPR Online News, Breitbart, Independent and Washington Post. Over a week after Election Day and with more than a 6% lead with 74% of ballots counted late Wednesday night, U.S. Representative Karen Bass, Democrat of California, is projected to beat billionaire real estate developer Rick Caruso in the Los Angeles, California mayoral race. She is the first woman elected to the position. Bass, a former community organizer who represents parts of Los Angeles in Congress, campaigned on unity in the wake of a recent city council racism scandal. Caruso, who outspent his opponent 10 to 1, campaigned as a political outsider who would cut bureaucratic red tape and build homeless shelters. 
Caruso was a lifelong Republican before becoming a Democrat ahead of the campaign, running on a tough-on-crime platform and receiving celebrity endorsements from stars such as Katy Perry, Chris Pratt, and Snoop Dogg. The six-term congresswoman and chair of the Congressional Black Caucus received endorsements from Democratic leaders including Joe Biden, Barack Obama, and Kamala Harris. She promised to declare a state of emergency over the homelessness crisis affecting 41,000 city residents. Bass called Caruso's promise to house 30,000 homeless in his first 300 days unrealistic, herself pledging to house 17,000 people in her first year. Having endorsed a recent vote on banning homeless encampments near schools, she'll face opposition from the city council's growing progressive wing. The mayor-elect will replace outgoing mayor Eric Garcetti, whose nomination to be U.S. ambassador to India is currently stalled in the Senate. Thank you, Eric. We have yet again a Democratic and Republican narrative. The Democratic narrative comes from the L.A. Times. Bass has a challenging term ahead of her, but her governing experience and connections at all levels of government put her in a prime position to make an impact. The city needs a solution finder and consensus builder to tackle its housing and crime problems, making Bass the right woman for the job. And we counter that with the Republican narrative, courtesy of New York Post. While former Republican Caruso hoped he could pull off an upset by bringing a more conservative mindset to the city, Los Angeles is simply too far woke today. With only 13% of residents identifying as Republican and racial politics playing a growing role, Caruso was up against a Democratic establishment candidate who didn't need to spend much to win. We turn our heads to Ukraine on day 267 of the conflict, A U.S. general doubles down on the need for negotiations, and Biden finds himself at odds with Zelensky. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NewsBud, U.S. News, TASS, and Pravda. After raising eyebrows last week by suggesting it was the right time for negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, America's top general and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, doubled down on his comments at a Pentagon press conference on Wednesday. You want to negotiate from a position of strength. Russia right now is on its back, Milley said. Now Ukraine has had great success, he added. But Kherson and Kharkiv are relatively small. So in terms of the probability of a Ukrainian military victory, defined as kicking the Russians out of all of Ukraine to include what they claim as Crimea, is not high militarily. Milley said the expected let-up in fighting due to winter conditions could provide that window for negotiations and that even if it doesn't produce a political solution, it could be at least the beginnings of talks to initiate a political solution. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Zelensky challenged the assertion that it was a Ukrainian air defense missile that landed in Poland, killing two civilians. However, after returning from the G20 summit in Indonesia, U.S. President Biden told reporters at the White House, that's not the evidence. Elsewhere, Turkish President Erdogan announced on Thursday that the UN, Turkey, Russia, and Ukraine have agreed to extend the Black Sea grain deal for an additional 120 days before it was set to expire on November 19th. While Russian officials have yet to comment, they'd previously raised doubts they'd return to the deal, stating that sanctions on Russian exports of grain and fertilizer hadn't been eased as agreed. On the ground, Russia launched renewed attacks on energy infrastructure on Thursday, striking facilities in Odessa and Kharkiv, where three civilians were reported injured. Russian attacks were also recorded in Zaporizhia, where four civilians were reported killed, 
and in Dnipropetrovsk, where 14 civilians were reported injured. Ukrainian officials added that two missiles and four drones were shot down over Kyiv. Thanks for the facts, Melissa, for that story. And three spins emerging, beginning with Narrative A, courtesy of CNN. Almost everyone agrees a diplomatic solution is the only way to end this war. While Ukraine is in a position of strength and a slowdown of fighting is expected, this may be the optimal time for a negotiated settlement. And Narrative B comes from the bulwark. Driving Russia completely out of Ukraine is not only in Ukraine's interest, it's in the West's wider interest as it will prevent Putin's authoritarianism from spreading elsewhere. Now is the time to double down on support for Ukraine in pursuit of these aims. We have our first nerd narrative of today's podcast, and it says that there is a 2% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before 2023, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. You know, Eric, in 267 days of reading about this story, this feels like the first time there's actually been an opportunity of presenting peace. You're right, it does. It seems like, you know, maybe there is a light at the end of the, uh, the tunnel. In our next story, a Dutch judge delivers the MH17 airline verdict. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Associated Press, Daily Mail, ABC, Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. On Thursday, a Dutch court convicted two Russians and a Ukrainian national of murder in the downing of the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 over eastern Ukraine in 2014. The incident killed all 298 passengers and crew. All three men commanded pro-Russian separatists in the eastern Donbass region. The presiding judge said the prosecutors had presented clear evidence that the Boeing 777 flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur was shot down by a Russian-made missile fired by pro-Kremlin Ukrainian fighters on July 17, 2014. The three men were sentenced in absentia to life imprisonment. A fourth man was acquitted because of a lack of evidence. As Judge Hendrik Steenhuis read the verdict, the family members of the victims stood weeping. Steenhuis stated, only the most severe punishment is fitting to retaliate for what the suspects have done, which has caused so much suffering to so many victims and so many surviving relatives. The court did recognize that the shooting down of MH17 might have resulted from a military mistake. Steenhuis clarified to the court that, quote, such an error did not change the intent. The court said it wasn't possible to establish who gave the order to launch the missile but the prosecutors presented telephone intercepts and video footage suggesting how the defendants had moved the missile launcher from Russia to the Donetsk region. The three men remain fugitives and are believed to be in Russia, which is unlikely to extradite any of them. The Russian government has 14 days to file an appeal on behalf of the three men. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that tragic story. We've got several spins, starting with a pro-establishment narrative from the Council of Europe. Family and friends of the victims have felt devastating pain for more than eight years, and now justice has finally been served. The Dutch court ruled on the state responsibility of the Kremlin for this tragedy. The verdict clearly shows that the international community will not accept impunity. Those responsible for this heinous crime must be held to account. And an establishment critical narrative is next, and it's courtesy of TASS. This is a politicized ruling and has no merit. The prosecutors failed to present any hard evidence. The court's double standards and one-sided approach are especially evident in light of the recent incident involving Ukrainian missiles striking the territory of Poland. Once again, Russia was scapegoated. 
In our next story, Britain will join France in its largest war games since the Cold War. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, The Express, The Defense Post, Le Monde, and France 24. UK armed forces are expected to join France in Operation Orion, a two-phase high-intensity war game that will take place in the French region of Champagne next spring in order to prepare for a major conflict. A spokesperson for the Ministry of Defense told The Express that British forces are constantly active, working and exercising with its NATO allies, adding that such drills improve the combat effectiveness of the alliance to deter potential threats. The news came as Yves Meteor, commander of the Troop Development Division at the French Chief of Staff, remarked on Tuesday that the geopolitical context justifies the exercise that had been in the works since 2020 following a strategic review in 2017. Orion is set to be the most significant set of drills carried out by the French Army since the Cold War. It will involve roughly 20,000 troops and all its resources, including the aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle two amphibious helicopter carriers, and the new Griffin and Jaguar armored vehicles. Troops will land in France by air and sea over three weeks in the first phase, simulating an intervention in fictitious country Arnland, undermined by militia backed by hostile Mercury State. They will try to repel a direct invasion of Arnland by Mercury in the second phase. Other NATO allies such as Belgium, Germany, Italy, and Spain, and the U.S. are expected to join the Orion War Games, which will involve air, land, sea, and space components, cyber warfare, and civilian operation in wartime, including health services and transport. Those were the facts, and we have several spins that have emerged from this story, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative courtesy of the EU Observer. The West must enhance its readiness for a clash with Moscow as Russia's invasion of Ukraine has revealed that the Kremlin is prone to engage in direct military confrontation across Europe. As the risk of a high-intensity war has returned to the continent, military exercises like Orion are needed, since any peace deal with Moscow will only be a temporary ceasefire. The establishment critical narrative is provided by RT. NATO creates confrontation without outside nations to fabricate enmities and justify its existence. The alliance is already largely responsible for provoking the war in Ukraine by carrying out a clandestine expansion to Kyiv following the 2014 coup, despite Moscow's well-founded national security concerns. These war games are more provocation that risk further heightening tensions. And there's a cynical narrative courtesy of Al Jazeera. Both Russia and the West are pursuing dangerous policies and actions that are driving the world ever closer to nuclear war. Both sides must reconsider their approaches now and act decisively to prevent catastrophe before it's too late. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus stating there's a 50% chance the next great power war will occur before June 2047. What I'm really intrigued about is this uh, Jaguar armored vehicle. Yeah, so I'm think Jaguar made this armored vehicle. Yeah. It's going to bring the military to a whole new level of luxury. Exactly. In our next story, news from the United Kingdom as the Chancellor plans billions in tax increases and spending cuts. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, NewsBud, and ITV. United Kingdom Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt released his autumn statement to the House of Commons and the British public on Thursday, which contained tax increases and spending cuts. As expected, Hunt left the three main tax rates unchanged. 
although the 150,000 pound threshold to begin paying the 45% rate was slashed to 125-140 pounds, a change that will affect approximately 250,000 people in the United Kingdom. The total savings from the autumn statement is approximately 55 billion pounds through tax increases and spending cuts. The Chancellor also announced that the windfall tax on oil and gas companies would be extended until March 2028 and increased from 25% to 35%. The National Health Service budget will be increased by £3.3 billion in each of the next two years as part of a, quote, record £8 billion package for the health and social care system, alongside an extra £2.3 billion per year being invested into British schools for the next two years. While forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility project that the economy will grow by 4.2% this year, Hunt admitted that the economy was already in recession, predicted to shrink by 1.4% next year before rising by 1.3% in 2024. Hunt stated that he was providing, quote, fair solutions, despite taking, quote, difficult decisions. The announcement comes a day after inflation reached a 41-year high of 11.1% in October with the Office for Budget Responsibility predicting the year's average rate to end at 9.1% for 2022 and hit 7.4% in 2023. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that story. The right narrative is provided by The Telegraph. In what has been a shocking year for the conservatives, the autumn statement must be the beginning of a party fight back. Hoping to calm the markets and ease pressure on government borrowing, there is still time for the Conservatives to relaunch and win over a skeptical British public in the next 18 months. With hope through Hunt and Sunak's short-term policies in 2023, the party can return to its tax-cutting normality. And there's a left narrative being provided by The Guardian. The Tories have no remorse, employing the austerity strategy used by George Osborne 12 years ago. Siding with oil and gas companies rather than helping the average person, we will all continue to pay the economic price for the Conservative Party's continued failings within the government. And the nerds are speaking up about this story, saying there's a 30% chance that the Conservative Party will form the first government after the next UK general election. That's from our friends at Metaculus. Well, my only piece of advice for this is keep calm and carry on. Yeah, it's worked <laughs> for the last hundred years, right? Right. Depending on who you ask. In our next story, Malta will ease the EU's last total ban on abortion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Street Insider, Euro, and Malta Today. On Wednesday, Malta's health minister, Chris Fierni, announced that the Mediterranean island is set to propose a change to its abortion law to allow doctors to terminate a pregnancy if a mother's life or safety is at risk. Malta is the only current EU state to have a total abortion ban. The reform comes after U.S. tourist Andrea Prudenti was refused an abortion in June for a non-viable pregnancy while facing a potential deadly infection. She was eventually transferred to Spain, where she had the procedure. In September, Prudenti sued the Malta government, claiming that the law banning abortion in all circumstances breaches human rights. The case hasn't yet come to trial. Under current law, if an abortion is performed to save a mother's life, both the doctor and the woman face up to four years in prison. The first reading of the amendment will be presented to Parliament on Monday. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. We do have a couple of spins that have emerged beginning with the left narrative courtesy of Malta Today. Finally, political attitudes toward abortion in Malta are beginning to change. 
often used within Maltese politics for self-serving partisan interests, the topic of abortion is now being treated as a genuine ethical issue that requires long overdue reform. This may be the first step to eliminating the Mediterranean island's archaic abortion law. And the right narrative comes from Times of Malta. Media coverage surrounding Malta's abortion laws has often been plagued with misinformation. Polling has consistently shown that a majority support Malta's pro-life stance. While the latest reform purportedly attempts to balance this stance with women's health, Malta needs to be cautious not to bend to outside media pressure. Yale and Harvard Law Schools Withdraw from Rankings And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Guardian, Washington Post, and CBS. Yale Law School and Harvard Law School each revealed Wednesday that they would withdraw from U.S. News & World Report's annual law school rankings. Each school criticized the rankings for conflicting with their commitments to student diversity and affordability. Heather Gerken, dean of Yale Law School, wrote in a statement, quote, We have reached a point where the rankings process is undermining the core commitments of the legal profession. Yale Law School has been ranked in the top spot since the magazine began publishing the list in 1990. Gherkin's counterpart at Harvard Law School, John Manning, stated, quote, It has become impossible to reconcile our principles and commitments with the methodology and incentives the U.S. news rankings reflect. Gherkin and Manning each expressed their disappointment that the rankings lean heavily on law school administration tests, or LSAT scores, and grade point averages, potentially leading to promising students being overlooked. They also lamented the disincentive the rankings can create to support students who want to pursue public interest careers. U.S. News Executive Chairman Eric Gertler defended his publication in a statement saying that the magazine is trying to hold law schools accountable and, quote, that mission does not change with this recent announcement. This isn't the first instance of controversy related to the rankings this year, as Columbia University admitted it submitted false data in past years. U.S. News still ranked the school, but dropped it from position 2 to position 18. Thank you, Eric, for the facts. We've got a few narrative spins as well. The left comes from the New York Times. This could be a start of a reckoning for the higher learning ranking system, which for too long has worked in opposition to diversity and equity. The rankings had already been under fire after the Columbia situation showed how the data could be manipulated. Now, the cloud of Yale and Harvard could inspire other schools to join their protest and create necessary change. And we counter that with a right narrative, coming from Daily Mail. It's hypocritical that these left-leaning institutions are citing inclusivity for their decision to no longer cooperate with U.S. News especially when you consider the unfriendly environment they regularly create for conservative opinions and speakers on their campuses. Now, these institutions are just trying to look woke by criticizing the rankings' emphasis on grades. There's no reason these schools can't diversify while still holding their students to a high academic standard. And our final story today, the FDA says lab-grown meat is safe to eat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, TechCrunch, CNN, and CBS. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday ruled that cell-cultured chicken made from cells of live animals and grown in stainless steel tanks by Upside Foods is safe to be eaten. Upside will now work with the USDA on obtaining the remaining approvals before the chicken can be sold to consumers at a time to be determined. Robert M. Khalif, the FDA commissioner, and Susan Main, director of the FDA's Center for Food Safety, issued a statement saying, quote, 
the world is experiencing a food revolution, and the FDA is committed to supporting innovation in the food supply. Companies like Upside have been working to make edible cultured meat in order to reduce the slaughter of animals and effects the food system has on climate change. About one quarter of greenhouse gas comes from animal agriculture. Once it has gained approval to sell the chicken, Upside says its California factory will produce around 50,000 pounds of it a year. A couple of spins emerging from this story, Melissa, and Narrative A coming from Daily Mail. Don't get too excited. This chicken can get all the necessary approvals, but that doesn't mean consumers are going to adapt their behavior and eat it instead of regular chicken. This could be a fad like the plant-based meats that were all the rage not too long ago, but have become less popular and put their manufacturers in financial trouble. And Narrative B is written by Vox. This technology is totally different than the plant-based meats, starting with the fact that it tastes just like regular chicken. Once consumers taste it and realize the benefits it can have to reduce climate change, animal cruelty, antibiotic resistance, and zoonotic risk, they'll buy it in sufficient numbers to make a major difference. FDA approval brings us just one step closer to this. Hey, Eric. Hey, Melissa. Why did the chicken cross the road? (laughs) I have no idea. To get to the upside lab. (laughs) Thanks, Melissa. I just lost my appetite. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, November 18th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are talking about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.